have you ever been to Donegal? It's the northwestern corner of Ireland, a place of sheer cliffs and crashing waves and long, bare, yellow beaches. For thousands of years, men and women have stood isolated in that landscape and felt the presence of their gods. In the first half of the 20th century, the lands and waters around Donegal were rife with stories of strange apparitions and mysterious events. From the phantom car that haunted the Rosses in 1936, to the phantom boat bathed in an eerie light that was sometimes seen following the fishing fleet as it left Glen Bay. There were also reports of more tangible terrors, of giant sharks 30 feet long that menaced the fishing boats off Rachlany Vern Lighthouse. But if the sea monsters of Donegal can be explained away, what happened on the 4th of May 1910 appears to defy all rational explanation, although many have been offered in the 111 years since. This isn't a ghost story as such, it's an account of a bizarre apparition that was witnessed by hundreds of people in Donegal and reported all over the world. It began as a pleasant spring evening at the edge of summer on Ilona Dulha, a small fishing village at the very northern tip of Ireland, the Inish Owen Peninsula. As with most coastal communities in Donegal up until recent times, the men of the village both fished and farmed to keep their families fed. On this particular evening, they were preparing the ground for crops when one of the men gazed out the sea and saw what looked like an enormous steamship approaching from the North Atlantic. Now, apart from the size of the vessel, this wasn't a hugely unusual sight, but in an isolated village where little changed day by day, it was worth stopping work and lighting a pipe for. But as the men crouched together, looking out to sea, they began to realise that what was emerging over the horizon towards them was no ordinary commercial steamer. First there was the incredible speed of the thing. It was shortening the distance between sea and shore in a way they'd never seen. Besides the speed there was also the enormous column of blue vapour. It was throwing up around itself, a curtain of spray so high that it touched the low-lying clouds. As the men puffed on their pipes and swapped theories about the strange object, a huge cloud of steam suddenly erupted from it, and the ship, or whatever it was, picked up even more speed, careening towards the coast at an unbelievable rate. The men spat out their pipes, threw down their rakes, and raced towards the beach to try and rescue any survivors of what was sure to be a devastating shipwreck. But before they could get there, the vessel reached the coastline, and the men shielded their eyes in horror. 
only to see the object, clouded in white spray, lift clean into the air and streak away inland. It soared over the remnants of Karagabrahi Castle and continued straight as a bullet towards the village of Legaburi. It was the noise that drew the villagers outdoors, a deafening noise which they described as sounding like the roar of a waterfall. As the object passed over the village, they heard an enormous crack from the sky, which gradually diminished as the thing sped away towards Malin. At Malin, one of the northernmost villages in Ireland, locals heard a sound like a ferocious hailstorm as the object shot overhead towards Kuldaf Bay, where it passed back out to sea over the horizon and out of sight forever. So, what was it? Well, theories abounded in Donegal and in newspapers from as far afield as the Augusta Chronicle in Georgia. And one perplexing fact complicated matters significantly. Because although the object was seen apparently lifting from the sea into the sky, it also left a trail of destruction on the ground. Three boats were smashed to pieces on the beach, one of which had been manned just a few minutes earlier. Cattle were injured in the fields beneath the object's path, and a mud bank was ploughed for a distance of 20 yards. For many, this weird visitation must have been somehow connected to the passage of Halley's Comet, which was crossing paths with the sun at this very moment. The arrival of the comet had become an obsession throughout the world in 1910, and some were even linking it to the death of Edward VII, who was lying on his deathbed on the very night that the strange airborne apparition terrified Donegal. A meteor of some kind does seem the most likely explanation, particularly given the loud crack described by villagers on the ground, which could well have been the sonic boom of the object breaking the sound barrier. That still wouldn't necessarily explain the damage on the ground, of course, but the local Coast Guard came up with an elegant suggestion for that. According to them, the object was most likely a dirigible, an airship, perhaps one of several that had been lost over the North Sea in recent times. The winds had carried its skeleton over the Inishon Peninsula and its trailing anchor had churned up the ground below. It's as good an explanation as any, unless, of course, you believe that extraterrestrial beings are going where even Iron Road Aaron fears to tread. As you might have gathered, tonight's tales of Ireland's haunted and eerie past all come from the north of the country. Not necessarily where the border is now, but from the historical province of Ulster and its immediate hinterland. A place where the tall tales of the sea mingle with Gaelic folklore and with the urban legends of the town and city. Our second tale tonight is a decidedly rural one. It takes place in the county of Cavan, 
between the First and Second World Wars, a time when, for whatever reason, ghosts seemed to float thick in the air. The subject of this story is a young man named Duffy, and the story comes from a respectable and venerable newspaper in the Irish Midlands. One evening, Duffy was returning home late through the green and lovely lanes of Cavan. Whether from business or carousing, we don't know. What we do know is that he caught sight through the hedgerows of something deeply unusual for that hour of night. A game of football in full swing on the moonlit meadow beyond the road. Being a game and hearty lad, Duffy's blood was stirred by the shouts of the players and the to and fro of the play, and as late as the hour was, he ducked off the road and into the meadow to join in. As he approached the boisterous knot of midnight footballers, the ball squirmed from their control and rolled invitingly towards him. He stepped up eagerly to boot it back into play, only to hear a voice call out clear as a bell in the still night air. Duffy! Don't kick the ball! He looked up in surprise to find the field empty, the players vanished, and no enticing lump of rags at his feet. And so Duffy trudged nervously back onto the road with a story he'd tell to his dying day. But this wasn't the only story of that meadow or of that ghostly game. And the next young man to chance upon it either didn't get or didn't hear the warning that was given to Duffy and would forevermore wish that he had. Strolling home late one night, this young gentleman came within a few yards of the meadow where Duffy saw that spectral midnight match, already a a local legend. But rather than go to the game like Duffy, in this case, the game came to him. Because right in the middle of the road, as out of place as a pair of diving boots, was a single, round, motionless football. The ball was made of rags, and it was lying right in his path. And so he did what any red-blooded young man would have done. He took a run-up at the ball, drew his foot back, and booted it as far as he could down the dark country road. But the second he made contact, the ball let out a scream. Literally that, what the papers called a wild, piercing scream. And as the ball flew screaming from his boot, shrieks began to rise up all around him, as if in some sort of diabolical sympathy with it. Within seconds he was surrounded by drawn-out blood-curdling shrieks on all sides, coming from the fields and the trees and the shadows, bouncing off the road, echoing off one another, and growing louder and louder and angrier. The young man 
whipped around in absolute terror, tripped over his own feet and scrambled back down the road and never, according to what he told the papers, set foot in that place again after dark. Let's stay in Cavan, that county of quiet lakes and dark woods, for a more traditional tale, and another brief one, of an Irish haunting. Or is it? This is the story of a haunting, but the house being haunted isn't an old country manor. It's a brand new, never lived in, labourer's cottage at Arva in County Cavan. This was a building without a history. The bricks and mortar were new, the foundations were new, the engineer had just handed the keys to the contractor. It stood empty, awaiting its first occupants. And yet, according to the local papers, lights were frequently seen blazing in the windows at all hours of night, and passers-by heard strange noises that sounded a lot like the rattling of chains. By the time December fell across the landscape, no one but the bravest would approach the new cottage after dark. Exactly how did a brand new cottage come to be haunted? Theories abounded at the time, but some pointed to the name of the village, Arva, this village on the border of three provinces. It supposedly means place of slaughter. And it supposedly got that name from the fierce battles fought among the armies of Connacht, Ulster and Leinster at this point where the three kingdoms met. No shortage of lost and tormented souls left on the battlefield to occupy houses old and new built on the site of their final agonies. And then there are some who think Arvach just means a subdivision of land. Whatever about its origins, the effect of the haunting on the community was very, very real. But there's courage in numbers and in youth, and on Christmas Eve 1937, a gang of local young men clubbed together to banish the spectre of Arva. Their plan was to lay the ghost at midnight on that holiest night of the year. Quite how they proposed to do that is, is unknown. But their plan quickly fell apart in any case. As the youths approached the house, the lights in the windows, those unearthly lights with their cold, pallid glow, suddenly went out, all together at once. And just as they did so, a low, sorrowful moaning began to be heard, drifting from the house towards the brave boys arrayed outside. Except they weren't so brave anymore. The boys immediately turned tail and ran home for the safety of the hearth and the holly wreath. And thereafter, according to the Anglo-Celt newspaper, no more was heard of the haunted labourer's cottage of Arva. So, 
If you're lucky enough to turn the key of a new house, don't assume that fresh paint and gleaming brickwork will protect you from the spirits that flit across the landscape looking for a home. Let's have another story. Let's venture further north this time, back to Donegal, to Glencolum Killa, one of the great fingers of the county that reaches out into the Atlantic. We're in the early weeks of 1939, but this is a story with far, far deeper roots. In fact, the tale of the gentleman in white has been told around Glencolum Killa for over 200 years. But in early 1939, the story made headlines across the island in what was surely one of the best documented hauntings in Irish history. What's particularly interesting is the different treatment the story received in different parts of the country. While it was reported faithfully in northern newspapers like the Belfast Telegraph, the locals were widely mocked in the southern press, particularly in the Cork Evening Echo. But it was no laughing matter for the people of Glencolumkilla, a landscape which has given rise to many ghost stories of the land and sea, a place sought out by saints and pilgrims for its savage solitude. And it's easy to see why. The road from Ongonyev to Jomro, where this apparition revealed itself, is a brooding and eerie one. As you leave behind the cosy homesteads of the wide valley, the road rises steeply before you. There's nothing now but deep embankments on either side, looking out over endless stretches of mountain bog, until at the turn of the road, you catch sight of Schlieve League, a sullen grey mass on the horizon. There's a spot on the road, a long hump of an embankment, known as the Yellow Bray. And it's at that spot that generations of locals have seen, well, whatever it is they've seen. There's a well-worn local legend that a wealthy yeoman's son died on this spot at the end of the 18th century, but that's less a ghost story than a fragment of folk narrative. What we do know, because they told the newspapers, is what two young men named McGinley and Malloy experienced in January of 1939. They were returning late one night, about 11 o'clock, from the village of Cashel or Ballycashel. Neither man knew the legend of the ghost of the Yellow Bray. And so they had no explanation for the sudden chill and sense of unease that crept over them, or for what Malloy described as the strange numbness that froze their limbs in place. It was only then, rooted to the rough mountain road, that they saw it. The figure of a man, a tall, slender figure, wrapped in a white overcoat, which crossed the road in front of them 
and then seemed to pass through a rough, dense thicket by the side of the road. Malloy and McGinley shared a look, each confirming what the other had seen. Nervously, they walked to the point where the figure had left the road and glanced through the thicket, expecting to see one of two things on the other side. A flesh and blood human being, perhaps more blood than flesh, after passing through the, the thorny hedge. Or alternatively, nothing, no figure, no apparition, which would at least allow them to pass off what they'd seen as some momentary trick of the light. But what they actually saw through the gap in the thicket was far more disturbing. Not the full ghostly figure, but what Malloy described as two long legs gliding away into the darkness none of the body being visible. McGinley corroborated Malloy's account to the letter, and the two men weren't the only locals to witness the return of the figure of the Yellow Bray. The figure was reportedly being encountered night after night after night, while McGinley and Malloy managed to shake off the experience. A middle-aged man, who was alone when he encountered the spectre, collapsed upon reaching his home. Coverage in the northern newspapers was matter-of-fact and sympathetic to the witnesses, but in the Cork Evening Echo, the columnist known as Eden went to town on the naive beliefs of the countryside as well as the fashions of the city. It is taken for granted that the ghost is a gentleman, Eden writes, because of the attire it wears. Up in Glencolm Killa, male attire is regarded as a sure indication of the masculine gender, which shows how remote the people are from urban concepts of suitable and fashionable wear. Eden's closing remarks were some words of censure for McGinley and Malloy, the two men who had seen the ghostly pair of legs disappear through the briars. Even recognising that it takes a brave heart to tackle a ghost, I think this one might be successfully tackled. The long legs seem to be its most lasting characteristics, and a kick in the shins might induce it to speak out its mind. It's easy to sneer, particularly from a distance of 300 miles, but cities themselves aren't immune to these local myths or legends. Belfast, by far the biggest in the north, has its share of urban legends and outright mass hysteria. One of the most famous is the Trinity Street haunting of 1931-32. Trinity Street is just off Clifton Street in the New Lodge area of town. Today the tall houses that once stood there are long gone, replaced by a rundown garage and perimeter walls smeared with Republican graffiti. It's a largely nationalist area now, although Clifton Street remains home to the biggest orange hall in the world, with a spectacular equestrian statue of King Billy on its roof rearing triumphantly 
over the city. But back in the 1930s, New Lodge was a much more mixed area, and members of both communities were drawn into its alleyways by the inexplicable and still unexplained events at the Tall House on Trinity Street. The story begins in earnest in January of 1932, although some claim the events had been ongoing since October of 1931, when a Belfast family rented the house on Trinity Street and began subletting it to other tenants. With the house now bursting at the seams, reports began to emerge of strange occurrences. Doors opening and closing on their own. Windows slamming shut. The standard fare served up by any ghost story in its earliest stages. But as an eerily mild winter settled over the Victorian terraces of New Lodge, those reports began to change. They became stranger, more unusual more disturbing. These reports centred on the coal shed at the back of the house. Residents passing the shed late at night heard low moans and groans coming from within. Of course, when they summoned up their courage and swung the door open, there was no one to be seen inside. But if there was something lurking in the coal shed, it clearly liked to stretch its legs. Doors were still swinging open within the house itself, including those that had been fastened shut with thick lengths of rope by the terrified residents. But worse was to follow, because as the cold comforts of a Depression-era Christmas faded away, the apparitions began. The descriptions of the figure were chillingly uniform. A dark shape, draped in a rope or a cape, and wearing a distinctive hat. Or at least, that's how the earliest reports described it. But as word spread, the figure began to mutate into new and horrifying forms. Sometimes it was described as a headless man in a dark cloak. Sometimes it was surrounded by a bright, ghostly aura. One young mother living in the subdivided house described waking with a start to see a ghostly hand hovering over her face, which suddenly drew back and disappeared into the room. You might think that by the early years of the 1930s, in a major industrial city like Belfast. The days of a ghost story bringing town to a standstill would have passed. You might think that in this world of electric light, of cinemas and the wireless, and of very real political and economic problems, a mere ghost, or even the rumour of a ghost, wouldn't have held such sway. Well, you'd be wrong. Because by the middle of January, 
Trinity Street was thronged with ghost hunters from all over the city and beyond, some arriving in carloads from the country in the early hours of the morning. And when I say thronged, I mean genuinely thronged. There were apparently thousands upon thousands of people crammed along the narrow street, spilling down laneways and back onto Clifton Street in dense, whispering knots. The ghost was a genuine social phenomenon. At the height of the panic, an advertisement appeared on the front page of the Belfast Telegraph, which read, The Belfast ghost is reported to have been seen examining the amazing suitcase bargains, now on view at Morrison's trunk stores. No doubt his departure will not be long deferred. As the days passed and word spread from street to street and workplace to workplace, the crowds at Trinity Street began to swell. Some of the spectators offered to sit in with the three besieged families, whether from a sense of neighbourly obligation or just for the thrill of it, we don't know. We do know that their vigil lasted only a few hours before a particularly terrifying manifestation of the ghost drove them away. As they sat in the kitchen, the figure began to appear before their eyes. I say began because, well, it didn't all appear at once. The figure ratcheted itself up inch by inch from the ground outside the kitchen window, although only those inside actually saw it. When it had reached its full height, its face grew clearer and clearer. Finally, the face lurched towards the window, peering in against the glass. Those who witnessed it could agree on three things. That it was the face of a man. That it was looking not at them, but at the room itself. And that its expression was one of desperate, abject sadness. It was at that point that the local vigil abandoned its station and ran out terrified into the street. They were replaced by members of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, a posse of whom had arrived on the scene to control the crowds. As Saturday night descended on New Lodge, there were police stationed on Clifton Street, police on Trinity Street, police lining the front of the house, and police guarding the stairway inside. One man who did manage to wheedle his way in was a correspondent from the Northern Whig newspaper, not to be confused with the modern pub of the same name, although it occupied the same building. The press man, who was scathingly sceptical of the whole affair, nonetheless left us with a haunting and disturbing image. As residents guided him through the house, up the stairs and into the ominous pitch-black attic, he noted that every window, every door 
every drawer and every cupboard in the house had been tied up with twine, but that most of these ties were now just frayed remnants. Someone or something had violently snapped them apart. In the febrile atmosphere it was inevitable that stories would circulate among the waiting crowd and grow legs as they went. The stories may have been growing legs, but the ghost was losing his head. Several by now second and third hand accounts declared the ghost headless above his flowing cape. Others claimed it was, in fact, not as most described a male figure in evening dress, but the flitting shadow of an old nun. The only halfway solid lead came from a person who insisted that a murder had taken place on Trinity Street many years earlier, and that the victim, named Edward or Edwards, although he was also said to have been a Turk, was buried beneath the coal shed. But despite loud appeals, the landlord refused to dig up the coal shed, and so no body was ever found. The Trinity Street ghost panic came to an end on Sunday, the 17th of January, 1932, when the three families crammed into the house could take no more. They packed up their belongings, upped sticks and moved on. And after that, the ghost, if such it had been, was seen and heard from no more. Some have speculated that the whole affair was just a wheeze on the part of the landlord, to get rid of his tenants, although landlords seldom have to resort to such extreme measures to get their way, then or now. Genuine or otherwise, memories of the Trinity Street ghost and the thousands of people who descended upon New Lodge to haunt it lingered well into the century. As late as the 1990s, a man named Felix Duffy, while putting out a public appeal for information on the ghost of Trinity Street, recalled that he could never remember this street in daylight, only on a dark night, with thick fog and the old gas street lamps dominating the darkness with their outstretched arms. The ghost house of Trinity Street long ago disappeared from the landscape, but to the best of anyone's knowledge, they never did look under that coal shed. We're indebted to the Belfast historian Joe Graham for some of the details on the Trinity Street affair, as well as to the numerous anonymous special correspondents who covered the story for the newspapers at the time, some more earnestly than others. All right. Would you like to hear one more story before you bring the evening to a close? You would? Alright. I'll try to make it worth your while. Let me see. Ah, yes. This is a tale from the ancient town of Newry. Well, strictly speaking, the city of Newry. It's been officially a city for over a decade now. Newry is close to the modern border between 
Northern Ireland and the Republic, but some would have you believe that it's also the border between this world and the next. Or at least they would have done around Christmas of 1960, when a very ordinary, very mundane street became a walk of terror. Nuri is home to the oldest canal in these islands, opened in 1742, but long since abandoned to the weeds and the rust and the wildlife. These reports centred on Key Street, a small row of houses running opposite the Clan Rye River, where it splits from the canal. It's a short street, bridging the distance between Kilmory Street and Both Street. It still looks much the same now, as in the photos of the time, with its discoloured facades, its weathered ancient street sign, and its solitary lamppost. Just around the corner is, well, a ghost of another kind, the ghost of the Schooner Lounge, an old-fashioned pub on the end of a residential terrace, long, long since closed, its gable wall still advertising comforts that are no longer to be found. You could walk the length of Key Street in less than a minute, but for two local women, in the winter of 1960, that minute must have felt like an eternity. Both women were accustomed to late hours, to getting up in the black of night while the town slept, as it was a requirement of their jobs at local factories. What they weren't accustomed to was meeting other people on their lonely walk into town, except for the occasional work colleague or the occasional late-night reveller out way past their bedtime. But the figure they encountered morning after dark morning in December of 1960 was no reveller. What was it? Both agreed that it was a man, or at least it had the shape of a man. It was tall, not exceptionally so, but tall enough and the figure always emerged from behind, but there was no sense of impending dread or of a presence at your back. No, very often, the first the women sensed of the figure was when it passed them by, continuing up Key Street, turning right onto Boat Street. It was only at that last moment that its face became briefly visible, under the pale light of the street lamp. It wasn't so much that the figure's eyes were black as, well, as one of the women told the Straban Chronicle, his eyes are so dark as to make you think that he has none at all. Night after night, this performance was repeated. The figure made no attempt to interfere with either of the women, but by now they were understandably terrified of making that dark walk alone. One woman asked to be taken off night work altogether, while the other began to vary her route in the hope of avoiding the figure. But before she did that, she bravely plucked up the courage to follow the figure 
to the corner of the street and to see where it was going each night. And this she did. The figure paid her no heed as she quickened her step to keep pace. She stopped at the corner and watched the figure turn right from both street onto Chapel Street. It made its way determinedly with brisk familiarity towards the derelict houses on the right-hand side of the street. Once the home of the local upper crust, but now darkened, crumbling husks. There, the figure disappeared inside. Literally, disappeared inside. The women's reports were taken seriously by local people and by newspapers across Ulster. But with the two witnesses now going out of their way to avoid it, the figure was, as far as we know, never seen again. But there was a sequel to the story. Some weeks after Christmas, the woman who followed the figure with the black hollow eyes onto Chapel Street was persuaded to return to the scene. She did so by daylight, in the company of several adventurous local men, some of whom were relatives of her. She pointed out the house the figure had disappeared into, and the men, bravely but somewhat gingerly, made their way inside. What did they find inside the peeling remnants of that grand house on Chapel Street? Well, no ghosts, no spirits, no shadowy figures. But hanging, hanging, mind you, in the narrow attic was a portrait in a gilded frame. It looked to be at least a hundred years old. The figure in the portrait couldn't be made out. It was covered in soot and grime. But both sides had been poked through and affixed below the portrait in tarnished brass was a plaque with this inscription. Seek him not, ye men of Newry lest he be found. And with that, the men unhooked the painting, left the house, and tossed the portrait into the river. That will suffice for tonight, I think. If you enjoy these evenings of ours, do please invite your friends there is some safety in numbers. Good night.